This is Dove Tuzman, and you're back on Equal Footing. We've had a deep dive over the last few weeks on science and Torah, talking about everything from what it would be like to celebrate Shabbat on Mars to the intersection of Jewish ethics and artificial intelligence, the halacha of aliens. We've been out there, figuratively, literally. Some of you may may have found those shows a bit abstract by intention, philosophical by intention. We're going back to our roots tonight. We are talking again about the human experience here on earth. Judaism is so rich with practical life guidance, but there are these certain moments in life where at least me as, I don't know, semi-observant Jew, aspiring observant Jew, areas where I get confused What is the guidance out there around grief? That's the topic for tonight. When you experience the sudden loss, particularly the sudden loss of a loved one, is there a set of recommended feelings? We know about the burial process. We know about sitting Shiva, although we'll get into the mystical meaning of that, I'm sure, tonight a bit. But is there, are there guides within our sacred text, within Jewish wisdom, that allow us to feel like we're on the right path? After all, like marriage and birth, other experiences, life, death is a certainty and has been part of our tradition, obviously, since the get-go, part of the human experience since the get-go. And yet, why does it feel like we are discombobulated, we're utterly confused often in the immediate aftermath of death and loss as to how we should react. Is should even an appropriate word to use here? Is grieving an intrinsically personal journey and religion, even philosophy maybe should stay out of the way of that personal experience? Like love, the is it the ineffable? Well, We're going to get into this from both a Jewish perspective, and this is always fun. We're going to get a different point of view. I think many listeners know over the years I have a soft spot for the Eastern traditions. There was a time in my life, this is not giving anything away for those who've listened for a while, where I decided I wanted to take sannyas. I wanted to become a monk in the Kashmir Shavis tradition and went to India, took vows of celibacy. I actually did that. It's been many years since. But I've strived over time. It's actually part of the reason why this show came into existence to somehow synthesize the beliefs that I was inculcated with as a child, as a Jew, and the Eastern mystical wisdom that resonated so deeply with me since I read Siddhartha as a, I think I was a preteen Herman Hess, great book. And so we're joined tonight by a new guest on Equal Footing to give us that Buddhist perspective in this case, Buddhism obviously kind of in, to some degree 
if not encompassing, certainly to some degree an outgrowth of and a relation to or, uh, a close relative of Hinduism. So we'll get that Eastern belief. So let me start by introducing our Buddhist guest. He's here in studio with me. I'm looking. It's so nice to be back in studio with guests. No offense to our guest on the phone, who I love and see frequently in person, but there's something about sitting here and looking at you. Bhikkhu, uh, you're a monk, a bhikkhu, a Buddhist monk. Uh, I'm going to call you by your honorific of Bhante, or Venerable Sir. So, Bhante Santi. Uh, Bhante Santi is a Buddhist monk. He's ordained in the Thai forest tradition. It's a meditation-centered branch of Theravada Buddhism. And Bhante Santi cultivated the small L of liberal, in, as in liberal practice of monasticism and his approach to Dharma or duty from a naturalistic and secular viewpoint. Bhante Santi is a Jew. He was uh, brought up in the reform tradition based in New York City. He lives in a small temple in the support of the local, with the support of the local Indonesian Buddhist community in Queens, in fact. Bhante Santi teaches meditation. He offers inclusive Dharma teachings approachable from a wide range of Buddhist, I love this, Buddhist and Buddhist and as and secular outlooks. There's so many Jubus out there. We know from listener feedback over time. Bhante Santi also writes and teaches on the intersections of Buddhism, science, philosophy, modernity, and personal life, and on renunciation. We've done a wonderful show. Check it out on SoundCloud or Spotify uh, or a podcast in the Apple platform on monasticism and celibacy. I think we did that show last year. He's written on that as well in contemporary contexts, as well as on the topic of the conscious use of technology and many other spiritual and practical themes. I hope this is the first of many occasions I get to speak with you, Bhante Santi. I hope so, too. It's nice to have you. Good to be here. You are joined, and we joked in one of our premium conversations, by someone that kind of sits on the Venn diagram with you, displaying my nerdiness uh, here, a dear, longtime friend and mentor for me is in the line with us, also from New York, from Manhattan Island, and this is Rabbi Yaakov Bankhalter. Now, you're both Jewish, and you both have an interest in Eastern thought and meditation. If Come at it in different ways, and I'm interested to see what views you share or diverge on on this issue of grief and loss. Rabbi Bankhalter almost requires no introduction. He's been on the show before. Many of you listeners know him personally. But I want to say his journey, although he's in within the Chabad Lubavitch movement, is quite different from most Chabad rabbis. Rabbi Yaakov, as I'm going to affectionately call him on the show, because I, I'm sorry, Rabbi, I'm going to fail if I try to call you Rabbi Bankhalter. So I love you to call you Rabbi Yaakov. You grew up in a secular family from a Long Island. I've heard you joke about being a frat boy at Ohio State University and living it up in a you know, rocky fraternity and uh, bartending and so forth. Uh, and you, although you, of course, had a bar mitzvah and you were raised Jewish, kind of more secularly Jewish, um, at, while on a college campus, you're approached by a local Chabad rabbi, Arya Kaltman, and he asks you the most important, I've heard you tell the story, the most important question that you were ever asked. And at the time, you were using your Americanized name of Jerry, and he said, are you Jewish? And you wanted so badly to say no, but you couldn't. <laughs> you reluctantly signed up for Chabad on campus, and the rest is history. 
You went from Jerry to Rabbi Yaakov, and you're such an inspiration, Rabbi, both online and in your services at Chabad Loft. You got to check it out. Chabadloft.org is the, uh, the site. You can also find them on Instagram and other social media. Uh, where Jews of all backgrounds come to hear not only about your personal journey in Judaism as a Balshuva, as someone who's discovered observance later in life, um, but also to share their journeys and to be accepted wherever they are on the Jewish path. I can attest to the fact there's never an empty seat at your Shabbos table, so people should look up Chabad Loft in the New York area. Check it out. Rabbi Yaakov, welcome back to Equal Footing. It's been a little while. Thank you so much. First of all, I'm very impressed with how you uh, remember the exact details of my story, um, even the rabbi's name on Ohio State. So for that, number one, I, I, you're listening. I'm, I'm happy to hear that, that you, you listen to, although you probably heard the story a gazillion times from all the shop at dinner, so I tell it. Um, but thank you for that. And I want to give a shout-out. I just yeah, go I ahead. just got a text from someone who I had no idea, a friend of mine who I just visited today, who's listening to your show I didn't even tell him to. He's actually just texting me. Oh my God, you're on the show, Darren Glick. I want to give a shout out to Darren that he should have a refuah shlema. He had a. Yes. He's a, was in the hospital today, and just um, and anyway, just wanted to say that he should have a have a uh, speedy recovery. He I, just sent me a text. He's listening to the radio show right now. I echo that. Darren's a, a friend, and I yeah. and gives great yeah. and challenging feedback sometimes on the show. I yeah. echo that sentiment. And yeah. Rabbi, I I I. Uh, I Charitably left out the part that you used to regularly have bacon cheeseburgers. So, but uh, yeah, oh, oh, yeah, oh yeah, no, yeah, I haven't left yeah. it out. <laughs> okay. Well, actually, you know what? This laughter at the beginning is a good segue um, yeah. into this. This, uh, and and I'm 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 sorry, gentlemen. I'm gonna take I'm gonna take the liberty to hit you some hard questions because this is a topic that. Um, I get confused about and to some extent bothers me, frankly, around some of the guidance that, that we get and maybe, uh, Bante Santi, I'll come out of this thinking more in a more Buddhist way on the topic. But as a, as to start with you, Rabbi, as a Jew, I feel to some extent like I don't, I don't know where I should sit between, um, I won't say laughter, but joyful remembrance of the departed. And that classic Western, um, you know, uh, the, 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 the dourness and the, the sadness and that, that pit in the stomach, because I, I see in some parts of, of Jewish wisdom, the idea that the eulogy, you know, is about, you know, kind of to some extent making you cry. And then, and you're so somber, you're sitting shiva. And so and then I see other parts of Jewish wisdom that seem to, at least imply that we should not be taken over by that depressive state and we should be as almost as joyful as we can be in the remembrance. What are we supposed to do when we lose a loved one? Um, I think you just made a great point. There is, there is a uh, sort of a dichotomy there of, of our approach to how to deal with mourning and death. There is on one aspect, there is the idea of Shiva and recognizing the sadness for that individual who lost someone. Um, on the other hand, there is another aspect to recognize that uh, a human being is, is in, its, in that person's pure essence is a soul, and souls don't die. A body dies, but souls don't die. So, like many things in Judaism, there's kind of two sides to the coin. So, you know... God, you know, God is with us in our pain. He understands our pain. On the other hand, our pain is not the only, it's an emotion. 
but it's not necessarily the true reality. So, so, so there are certain moments we're supposed to reflect on what truth is, and truth is that life for a soul never dies. On the other hand, we're human, and we perceive reality the way we perceive it, and the passing of someone is a very sad moment, or any sadness in life. So we have to, we can't just be insensitive and just say, oh, it's a soul, it doesn't matter. It does matter. We feel pain. It hurts, you know. So, so Torah recognizes that reality as well. Rabbi, so I've heard... I've heard, I think, from you in the past, as I've dealt with grief, we've known each other as, as that's happened in my life, and in talking to others, that this concept, and I give my, myself permission to stylize and be wrong, but this Jewish concept that we shouldn't fall into uh, utter, utter sadness in our response to a horrible event in life, like the passing of a loved one, but it's okay... I, for us to be in that state on behalf of someone else. So like that you can really um, feel someone else's grief, but if you yourself are, are grieving that loved one that you want to try to kind of, to some extent, stay afloat more. Do I have that right? I'm not, I'm just troubled. I'm just trying to find I, I would like to, uh, if it's okay, I want to quote, you know, the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe is an amazing letter. I think it was the 1960s. It's actually printed in English. And it's dated on the 3rd of Thomas, the day the Rebbe ended up passing away. 3rd of Thomas. This letter was written maybe the 1960s, which would be 30-some-odd years before the Rebbe did pass on. But the letter was written to an individual who was over-mourning. They were, you know, I guess maybe it was past. The, you know, there are time limits for mourning. There's the first seven days, the most intense days. And there's the 30 days called the Shloshim, and then there's the year. And then each point is kind of like a new level of, you know, moving, moving on. But the, even the Torah puts limitations on it. So in this letter, dating the third of Thomas, the Rebbe said that it's not healthy to overmourn. It actually is painful for the soul that we're mourning for, because the, the person that we're mourning for is the soul that lives on, and wants the people that it leaves behind to have, have a happy life. Right. So when we're overdoing the morning, it's not bringing any comfort to the soul that passed on. And sometimes it, it becomes somewhat self-centered. The morning process, we become so focused on ourselves. So that's why there is an understanding, obviously, that when someone loses someone, you know, um, whether it's a parent or God forbid, any, any person in your life, there is an understanding that we need to be human, sensitive, but at the same time understand that we, as we should, how we view life, we are not limited to just physical bodies. The body dies. The body was a creation from the earth, and the, and the body by nature is lifeless. Um, it's not nature. It's, it's, to be, it's to die. That's what we do. That's where we understand that a person should be buried put back to the earth. But the soul is intrinsically life. The body's not intrinsically alive, and life is actually is imposed on the body. And then when the life is removed, the body goes back to the ground, where the soul itself is pure life. So we have to, we live in the body, but we also recognize the soul. So it's a combination of, of not over-mourning, but on the, on the other hand, not being, we don't want to be cut off from our emotions. We, have, we need to go through the process of, of uh, experiencing death, because it's somehow it's part of the reality which God created, is, is life and death. Bante Santi, I, I feel like in a certain sense, 
So I'm listening to Rabbi Yaakov talk about that, the impermanence of the body and also the concept of we're doing the departed any service in a sense by over mourning. I love that, that, that guidance. Uh, it, I feel like you have a leg up as a Buddhist on us Jews. Well, you're a Jew too, but as a Buddhist philosopher, because there's such a focus as I understand it on impermanence. And as, as I understand it, that, you know, mourn death of, of a loved one gets, you know, put in that, I think I remember from a previous get the dukkha bucket, like of suffering. And, but that life is in a sense that, um, is it, am I, am I oversimplifying is, is the Buddhist approach to death, like simpler, easier in a certain way than that, that complex kind of two sides of the coin that Rabbi Yaakov just explicated on the Jewish side. I would say that no, it's, uh, it's no easier for, for a Buddhist to lose a loved one. Uh, than it is for a Jew or anyone else. The Buddhist perspective comes at grief, along with all the other forms of, of suffering and, and and distress, from from a different perspective than we just heard uh, Rabbi Yaakov uh, expressing so eloquently. There are different kind of philosophical ideas and different, you know, metaphysical ideas and claims about what happens after death and what the soul is or isn't. But they're not at the center of a Buddhist response, as I understand it. We start from what you were getting at, the the fact of the reality of suffering. It's often referred to as the truth of suffering, the noble truth of suffering, but it's truth more in the sense of the fact, the reality of it. There's no, uh, there's no need to, uh, to reach for faith in the truth of suffering. We all know suffering, and, and the loss of a loved one is the quintessential suffering. That mm-hmm. is yeah. dukkha. Dukkha is suffering in, in Pali, the ancient language of, um, of, of the Buddhist scriptures of the oldest Buddhist scriptures, because there's a lot. There's a lot of Buddhist scriptures. That the two faiths have in common. <laughs> Indeed. But in, in explaining how suffering is at the center of the, of, of the Buddhist approach, I want to back up a little bit to, uh, to, to something you said in your uh, introductory comments. It was a question you asked, is should an appropriate word here is there a way that we should feel? Is there a, uh, a map to guide us through the, the correct way to process the challenge of dukkha as heavy as the, the death of a, someone we love? And to that, I'd just you know, kind of raise a, a, a counter question that you and, and anyone listening can investigate in their own experience, which is, well, do you really have a choice? Can you control your feelings? My experience and what I see is that we have a very limited ability to control our our feelings, yeah. to control our mourning, our grief, the process of it. One of the things I've always admired about the Eastern traditions and the Buddhist path in particular, Bhante, is what it seems, at least from the outside, that ascetic uh, ability to control feelings, but maybe I have that wrong. Well, it's not how I construe it. It is the way that some 
some monks and some Buddhists construe it, uh, that what we're, what we're striving for and, and even accomplishing is some kind of supernormal ability to control our feelings. But I don't really think that's it. Uh, we can't control our feelings beyond, we, we have some limited ability to direct our, our feelings. What we cultivate is, if I can get into a little bit of Buddhist jargon, wholesome mind states. Wholesome is the translation of a word, uh, a kind of central word from Pali, kusala, skillful, wholesome, healthy, beneficial. Its opposite, akusala, is unskillful, evil, unhealthy, negative, painful. So what is that, before we take our first break, what is, in simple language, the healthy Buddhist-dictated response to loss, to grief? Well, it's acceptance, mm. but not acceptance of the loss as in, oh, okay, well, the nature of life is impermanent, and so, you know, I knew that person was mortal. It is what it is. It is what it is. Wash my hands of it. It's acceptance first of of what's actually happening, namely you're freaking out, you're uh. enraged, you're bizarrely making bizarre bargains with the creator, uh, you're crying uncontrollably, or maybe you feel like weirdly detached. The first response is know what's happening, recognize what's happening, and acknowledge, okay, this too. There's a kind of uh, opening to the process of grief that comes simply through recognizing what's happening. Yeah. It, we're going to have to take our first break, but uh, you just kind of hit upon what I think, Rabbi Yaakov, is another area of commonality between the Buddhist and Jewish approach, this kind of acceptance of disorientation. And I actually think, I personally think that's quite beautiful because there are certain religious dictates out there not represented with the faiths being talked about tonight that, that have very kind of structural, like you, you've got to feel this or do that. And I think about Rabbi Maurice Lamb's, you know, book, The Jewish Way and Death and Mourning, which is kind of like a, a go-to, um, uh, tome on this subject. And he, and he talks about that the Jewish way is to accept the uncommon confusion, the chaos, and the bewilderment, the dislocation, the discontinuity, the out of sync, the cannot quite decode it of death. It's Jewish to feel that way. So we'll be right back. Uh, I want you to comment on that, Rabbi Yaakov, if you would, uh, after the break. Do you agree with Rabbi Maurice Lamb? Do you, um, do you sense agree with, with Bante Santi that the, that we are, we should accept that um, dislocation and confusion. We're talking about grief and we're getting a guide to grief from Rabbi Yaakov Bankhalter, founder of and congregation leader at Chabad Loft in Manhattan and Bhikkhu Buddhist monk Bhante Santi here in studio with us. We'll be right back. Love pink. One of the new sponsors on Equal Footing so embodies what we are doing here on this show, which is attacking the difficult, talking about what we don't often know how to talk about. And that is the sponsors of the What If Relationship Workshops. 
Are you tired of feeling like you and your partner don't connect? Like you've lost the spark? Are you afraid to share your concerns, your fears, even your fantasies? What if your relationship involved total intimacy, openness, acceptance, and lack of fear? The What If Relationship Workshops, which take place in the New York area, around New York City, as well as upstate in the Catskills, are designed to address these issues and more with a particular focus to on uh, Jewish couples. The What If Weekend Workshops include a variety of activities and exercises aimed at improving communication, fostering intimacy, and strengthening the bond, ultimately, between partners. By taking place in the What If relationship workshops, couples can learn to better communicate their desires, their boundaries, their fears, the disillusionments with one another, and explore new avenues for intimacy and strengthen their emotional connection. I'm going to give you the number. Give it a couple times. I'm going to stop here to give you the number for the What If relationship workshops. There are workshops going on in June, July, August, a couple of months. They do fill up fast. There's only six couples per workshop uh, to keep them intimate and uh, in the right format. The number, write it down, 848-305-9903. That's for the What If Relationship and Intimacy Workshops for Jewish Couples, 848-305-9903. Gain a deeper understanding of the roles that your fears play in your relationship, where you're holding back, cultivate a more positive and fulfilling emotional and intimate connection. The workshops are particularly good for new empty nesters and couples starting families where you're at that transition point and you want to make sure you're off to that new journey on the with the right step. So once more, the number for the what if relationship and intimacy workshops in the New York area, 848 845-9903. You're back on Equal Footing. Tonight's show, A Guide to Grief, is with Rabbi Yaakov Bankhalter and Buddhist monk Bante Santi. I'm going to give out the number to participate. I know some of you know the number from the past. We've already gotten some text questions and comments, which we'll get to shortly. To call in to the studio, we're live on the radio till 8 o'clock. The number is 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. If you want to text or WhatsApp in a question or comment to Bante Santi or Rabbi Yaakov, or myself, the number is 917-428-4062. Please don't call that number. That's for texting or WhatsApping in questions and comments, 917-428-4062. Okay, back at it. Rabbi, before the break, I quoted Rabbi Maurice Lamb. A lot of people quote as it relates to Jewish wisdom and death and mourning. Do you agree with his assessment that it is Jewish to be discombobulated and confused and bewildered and disoriented after death of a loved one. Uh, of course. I mean, really, that book is, I mean, is, a, is an amazing book. I've used it many times. I've recommended it. I've bought it for so many people. So, yes, it's a great book for for understanding uh, the Jew, as this book is entitled, The Jewish Way of Mourning and Grieving. Although I would once again, I would actually call that maybe stage one. Mm. Um, that's not the ultimate um, place you want to be at, but of course, let's say in the in the first in the first moments or first days, or you know, depending on 
you know, the loss, yes, that, you know, it's definitely, uh, highly to be, to be a lot of chaos involved, a lot of emotional, um, just, um, feeling, feeling not at a loss, feeling, you know, not knowing where to go, where to turn, you know, feeling why, you know, asking questions. So yes, that, that is part of it, but it's, we need to at one point move on from it. Once again, the stages of, these are stages of mourning. And there's acceptance, as mentioned, definitely acceptance, um, which is why in, Ju- in Judaism, the law is that God forbid when you hear about a death, you make a blessing called Baruch, and, and the, the, the expression that we say is Baruch Dain Ha'amet, which, you know, blessed is the one that for, for a mourner, he actually makes the full blessing, and, he, and which is basically the judge of truth. Because it's basically saying that's it. Sorry for the interruption. I was going to ask you about that particular prayer. And if you could say it slowly for those that are not familiar, because it's, it, it's quite mystical, I think. And why do we, yeah. why do we use that exact turn of phrase? Well, basically it's where there's no getting around it, right? Everything except for death and taxes. God is the, it just, it's, we, always will find loopholes or ways of getting around something, but somehow it's the one thing that we just can't for right now get around. And it's from God and we recognize it. And it's, it's as mentioned, it's, it's acceptance of the situation. But and why that do, it's, it's from God. There's why no, do you say Baruch Hashem Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Dayan HaEmet, the judge of truth or the just judge? Why doesn't it feel? It feels to me. It always feels like it's like rubbing someone's nose in something. Like it doesn't feel just if you lose the 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 foremost loved one in my life yeah. lost suddenly someone. In, unspeakably close to them, um, like uh, about a week and a half ago, and I, I said that to I said that to them, but it it just it felt in a certain way like the just judge, like it was just that she lost someone like that. It, it feels like a weird um, blessing. Well, the expression in the Talmud. Um, which, which is, there's a chapter of Tanya dedicated to that, chapter 26, that quotes the Talmud and says the following, so just like we bless God for the good, the revealed good, you know, when there's something good that happens, we make a blessing on that, so too, we make a blessing on the sad things, because we have to, on one, we have to accept a faith, so just like the revealed good, and I emphasize the revealed good is from God, the, the non-revealed good, which is what essentially death is, non-revealed good, because everything is good, it's just either revealed or non-revealed. T- taxes also. also. from God. Right. And so, but however, it's because it's not revealed good, and God understands that we are sad from it, so we don't make, we don't make a blessing, oh, thank God that it's amazing. We don't say that like we would say, but the, the blessing we make for good is hatov v'hamitiv. That means when like something really good happens. However, when something sad happens or something something powerful as death, you say dying Hamet. Do you say dying Hamet for other things that are that that look bad or or, un, or concealed goods or just for death? I mean, so, just for death, just for death. I mean, there might be other examples. I, I don't know, but mm-hmm. in terms of making the actual blessing of mourner, the actual blessing with the, with the full name is only said by the mourner. Uh, 
when he actually is in front of the usually said at the moment when he's there, in front there's of There's so much the, uh, I, I want to get into. I'm sorry for the interruption. I want to quickly, Bhante yeah. Santi, is there a sure. blessing in Buddhism that you say upon when you're talking to someone who's just lost a loved one? Well, yes, there's not a blessing in the, the sense of uh, a Jewish blessing, but there are, you know, there are rituals. There are, there's chanting that we're do, doing. There's a calling on the forces of goodness to support, to support the, the one who's lost, to right. support all of us in a loss. So I want to address aloneness, gentlemen. Um, I'm going to challenge you, uh, both of you, a bit on a couple topics that have bothered me. I promise I do that at the outset of the show. Please don't take it personally. It seems like in both faiths, there is, I'm not going to say an undo, but there's definitely, it seems like a theological focus on aloneness. Like Rabbi Yaakov, when we sit Shiva, you know, we, we don't, if we're a direct mourner and we're sitting Shiva, we're not participating in stuff in the community. We're like, it's like, recognize that we are alone and others come to console us, but there's like an aloneness. And, and, and in Buddhism, it, it, it feels like there's also this, I got to it earlier, the, this cognizance of like the noble truth, as you put it, the noble truth of suffering. And it's like the fundamental aloneness <laughs> that we, and it feels like, it feels like that's like the totally the wrong message. To, for someone to, to, for us to have as a guide in mourning, it's, it's like, feels like it's most when we should be told and feel like we're not alone. We're so cognizant of the loss that has left us alone. Why is that a theological focus? Well, I, I wouldn't say that that is the, the Buddhist focus. In okay. fact, um, in, in the major branches of Buddhism, the, the focus is on interconnectedness. And, uh, the, our commonality, we're all, we're all subject to loss. We're all subject to suffering. We all want the same things in life. We all want security and safety. We all want to have what we hold dear and not have what we don't want. For instance, the loss of a loved one. Sorry, no, let me interrupt. interrupt Yeah, I can answer that. I'll go right to the answer and I'll say the following. I, I, well, I wanted to add one more yeah. point about suffering, ahead, which is that it's it, the the first so-called noble truth of the the Buddha. The first fact is not life is suffering, not everything is suffering. In fact, it's not even a sentence. If you go back to the original Pali, uh, as as I've done, it's simply a word: suffering. There is suffering. If you want to make it into a sentence, it's not that suffering is all of life. It's simply that it's a part of life. It's an inevitable part of, part of life that we, uh, that we're called on to come, come to terms with. So that is a, an incorrect stylization on yes. my part of Buddhism. Rabbi Yaakov, did I also get it wrong as it comes to the emphasis yeah, on the loneliness in the morning and Judaism? I, I love you, but you got it wrong both times. With, I guess apparently with Buddhism and with Judaism. <laughs> so, um, so actually, uh, right after someone passes away and there are the mourners, he is, or she is not to be alone, which is why you have that week of shiva. Um, there's a, a, a mitzvah, woman mitzvah called to be Menachem Avo, someone, and they should be bombarded with visitors who will come and express their sorrow and connections. And if you ever go to a shiva house, especially someone who is very involved in community, you will find the whole week long and stories after stories and Almost like the house of, of a person who's in, in, in a And I'm, unfortunately, I've, I've experienced it myself. I lost my mother. It's like the whole week. You go, you, you're walking into a house where everyone is happy. 
Mm. And never, you know, because they're telling, always telling stories about this person. You remember this, when that happened? And they go through it, and, you know, everybody comes in, has a different aspect. And it, it all, almost always makes the person happy and cheerful. To be honest, and I can say this firsthand, the saddest moments for me when the shiver was over. Yeah. You go back to real life. Me too. I mean, you're not surrounded by people. You're just yeah. going back, and it's like, how do I deal with real life now? And that was about, for me, that was the hardest moment. It was like going out of the shiva because you're just constantly being bombarded with people, and it's just it was so nice. Everyone reminding you of this, reminding you of that, and you laugh, you laugh, yeah. you laugh, and then all of a sudden you're like back to work. We got it. Like, we got how it. Do I go back? We got a two for you both. You both got to correct me, which I love on air. And and two, you both agreed on some guidance. I wanted to get some some guidance tonight. So it sounds like guidance yeah. is to be interconnected, to be with others, and not to be alone. Always. So that's a frank Always. misunderstanding on my this side. This is true in a Buddhist ritual as well. There's a gathering around the the mourners. Uh, there's a gathering around the bereaved. I would say as a footnote, not to sound defensive, but I do think when we're mourning, we do have, and maybe this actually is in fact just the mirror of what you're saying from the personal perspective, you have an urge, at least I've had an urge at times to be alone, to just go within and contemplate my relationship with that person and kind of, I know when I lost my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, uh, we all feel like we have a very unique relationship with each family member. I felt like no one understood the relationship we had. I didn't want to hear from anybody. I just wanted to remember him. I just wanted to think about him. And I was kind of, I remember being angry at some of the stories that were being said or some of the things that I felt were coming out of Shiva. And please, if family members listening, don't be offended by this. Cause I felt like, no, that was a, you, maybe you even feel that guys, <laughs> family members might be listening. Um, that's a misunderstanding of who my Zyda was. Like it, it was like, so I did feel like there's a part of me that just, I want to be alone. Now, I want to challenge you guys on something else. Um, to me, it feels like at least Judaism, less informed about Buddhism, to some extent have appropriated like the, the Dr. Elizabeth Kubler Ross's, you know, five stages of, 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 of grieving on from his, her 1969 book on death and dying. She talks about denial and anger and bargaining and depression, and ultimately acceptance. Now, what do I mean by appropriating? That's, we did a show last year on the loss of a loved one, but from a therapeutic, from a psychotherapy perspective and from a personal journey perspective, not the theology per se we're talking about tonight. And it kind of feels like the language that you read about even some of the like Buddhist stuff online around, around death, certainly in the, in the Jewish writings, Rabbi Yaakov feels to me like you use some of the same language. You go to Chabad.org and you talk about the stages and it feels like it almost is a carbon copy of Kubler, Kubler Ross. You earlier, Bante, you know, talked about acceptance also. Is just, is this just because this is the way to react to death or is this an example of contemporary religious faith learning from and adopting psychotherapeutic wisdom. Well, I would think, and I'm sorry, is the question for me or for... Both of you. Go ahead, Rabbi. Okay. So there's this one stage missing from that in the Jewish, um, definitely for sure, in the Hasidic approach. To, um, in the Jewish and Hasidic, I would say uh, clearly one is one with the same as the other, and that is action. That would come after acceptance, meaning, or, or maybe the better word is transformation. Sadness unto itself is understandable, but it, the most, the best thing that we can do eventually is how do we take that sadness and transform it into actuality in this physical world? Because the difference 
that we say between a soul and a body and a soul not in a body is that a soul wants to be in a body so it can do something good. And when we when a person passes away, they can't do a deed, they can't do a mitzvah, they can't do an action. Whereas we who are here in this physical world, in the memory of someone who passed away, can do something, make a difference, make a change in this world. What? So a famous story that I often tell right. on Passover, I'll just shorten it. Shorten it, shorten though, the story, but, we're, ready, we're going to run out of time. Yeah, okay. So the, the, the 1950s, there was a, a movement that wanted, they wanted to start to put an empty chair at the Passover table in remembrance of the six million Jews from the Holocaust. And then they approached the Rebbe, the Babajah Rebbe, on whether or not he could convince his followers to do the same, uh, put that empty chair. The Rebbe's response was, better to put a chair, an empty chair, but then fill it with a body, fill it with a person who would not experience Passover. That is the ultimate stage, meaning go from sadness to acceptance and then transform it into action in this world. I'm glad you told that story. That's that, that beautiful. For me, that encapsulates the Jewish approach. Uh, Sante, Sante, what do you, what do you, uh, what do you, what do you think, Bonte, excuse me, I'm learning the lexicon, Bonte, Sante. Everyone calls me Sante, it's fine. Okay. Uh, how, how, what do you think? Have we appropriated Kubler-Ross's stage of, stages of grief? We have, and that's fine. Religions, traditions are natural phenomena, like human minds, human hearts going through through loss and in our contemporary idiom from we we need to incorporate contemporary ways of thought. There's nothing in the way that uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross looks at the psychology of mourning that contradicts what we find in Buddhism. And in fact, one one point that that we're maybe going to benefit from revisiting is this this different approach. Uh, I am just now sort of keying into your interest in this episode in focusing on theology. But actually, Buddhism is not fundamentally theological. We're not starting from a view of how things are and from there proceeding to how do we deal with things as a result. We're starting from how are we experiencing things and how can we benefit from responding to them? How can we respond to them in a way that, that, that's most beneficial to ourselves, to others, and to the whole situation? I'm a bit jealous as a Jew because when we look at, we have shows on halacha and so forth, we always have to retrofit reality to the Jewish law. It sounds like Buddhism is, there's less retrofitting necessary. I mean, as I understand it, there are, you know, there are certainly very orthodox Jewish sects and, and, uh, practitioners who would say, no, we have a very clear view, which is the view of, of karma and reincarnation and progress towards an ultimate release called nirvana or nibbana, depending on your tradition. But but in a sense, Buddhism is, we, we might say, over-determined. There's more than one way to understand it. And that is also of the essence of uh, uh, of the teachings of the, the historical Buddha, at least, that things are not only impermanent, um, but they have no fundamental defining essence. They change over time. In fact, that's what impermanent means. We'll be right back. This is a guide to grief from a Jewish perspective, from a Buddhist perspective, with Rabbi Yaakov Bankhalter, with Buddhist monk Bante Santi. You're on equal footing. After the break, we want to, I want to talk about anger. And my tunes were played on the hall. Uh, strong, would you hear my voice? 
Equal Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on You're back on equal footing. This topic was so important to me personally. I think many listeners that were skipping an ad break, we're going to go through our last 15 minutes without interruption. Uh, Bante Santi and Rabbi Yaakov, I want to talk about anger. Uh, Kublu Ross, it seems like more perhaps than the religious guidance, it, you know, really, uh, it admits or acknowledges, I should say, that anger is a main reaction to uh, death. Um, and I, I, I have lost many loved ones and, and have had that reaction myself, anger at God, angry at the person, maybe that they didn't say that, you know, where, where they were, um, health wise, um, anger at the unfairness. Like, do, do, do the Jewish and Buddhist faiths actually allow for that? Is it okay for us to feel angry, Rabbi? In general, any emotion is okay. It's just a matter of well, how we express it is the question. So meaning, you know, whatever the um, emotional reaction to anything in life, it's understandable whether it's from death or some other hardship or some human experience that creates a uh, an emotion that's connected with the idea of gavura, which is the idea of fire. Um, if someone, you know, if your something happens to you, uh, your God forbid, you lose a, a financial sum of money. I mean, you know, or, you know whatever the whatever we feel, that's normal human behavior. It's okay to be angry at Hashem. Well. That's a different story. To be, I mean, yes, to a certain degree. I, I don't know that that's a mixed statement. It's okay to anger or shame. It's okay to feel anything. The question is, what do we do with it? What do we do with that uh, that feeling? I think that um, um, just to quote another another amazing rabbi, Rabbi Johnson Sachs, who himself just passed away somewhat recently in the last two years, and there was a video that he had you know, sent around not too long before he passed away and he was talking about death and mourning and grieving and he, and he said the same idea that on one hand we accept it and it's from Hashem but on the other hand God wants us to not be happy with the status quo because mm. um, I think that's part of the Jewish reaction to death is, a, is once again, it's a, it's a mixed feeling. Yes, this is from God but God wants that there should be joy in the world so we should question, we should demand more, we should not be happy just with death and sickness and sadness 
and, and there's a sense of lacking in the world that we, should, on one hand, we should question. So I guess the, the healthy emotion should be an emotion that, once again, that leads to action. Okay. Bante, Bante Santi, is, is it okay in Buddhist tradition if, as Rabbi said, it's like, Rabbi Yaakov said it's productive, it's leading to something, is it okay to be angry at God? Well, Buddhism is, is not, is not a theistic religion. So, whether there is or isn't a God, it, again, it's not the question. It's, it's kind of a, it's a kind of philosophical conundrum that we can get lost in, that can lead us away from what's really central. Um, so the, I, I really agree with what Rabbi Yaakov said about, okay, it, it's okay, but is it healthy? Uh, this is a, you know, that's a very, um, you know, Buddhist perspective. And sorry, Rabbi, to link you to Buddhism in the same sentence that I just said it's an atheistic religion. I know that's not where you're coming from. Um, that's fine. I'll get more followers on Instagram from that. That's okay. Excellent. Glad to hear it. Uh, but the, you know, mourning can go wrong. We, we do best to accept our feelings, but we also need to look to the, you know, our own well-being longer term. There's a process that, that can get stuck. And our loved ones can see it. We can see it in ourselves when that we're not coming out, yeah, Rabbi getting stuck in depression. I want to, we're going to get to you caller on line four in a, in a moment. Uh, I want to talk about celebrating death. Uh, we've had a couple of questions that have come in. I wanted to bring this up myself. Uh, I hope I'm again not offending the other side of my family, but my, when my paternal grandfather passed, we all gathered around, of, of course, as, as is the tradition and people were telling stories. And my grandmother in blessed memory, who was, who was still alive at the time, when it got to her turn, we were like going around the table. She obviously knew my grandfather best, married to him for 70 years or something. Uh, she, she said, why is everyone so unhappy? Uh, you know, it's to me, it's wonderful that he's gone. What did she mean? Well, she meant things are very different into the spectrum, as it turns out, which she talked about, talked about us with, or talked to us about. One was that there was an end to the suffering, uh, his suffering and the suffering in the household. And two, because for a large swath of his life, he was an abusive alcoholic. And caused a lot of pain for others. And I, I can say without, without naming other instances, there's been another instance in my life where I felt like, you know, there's a part of me that wants to celebrate that this, this particular journey is over. And that's hard to say out loud. Um, is there a place, maybe you start Bonte quickly as we get up on time here. Is there a place for celebrating passing either in a practical way or just that, you know, suffering's over. Is that, is it, is it, is it okay? Well, those are two really different things. They're totally different. Celebrating. They can be true at the same time. Release or appreciating a release from suffering is, uh, completely, you know, beneficial. I think it's really, uh, a, a zooming out, a looking at the bigger picture, turning from your own personal sense of loss to the, the, the larger picture that includes what the person who died was going through encompassing them in your circle of concern and seeing that, oh, wow, that person was suffering terribly, that, you know, they lost so, so much, their faculties were diminished. This is a release for them. And and finding some goodness in that is totally positive. But, yeah, rather than looking at, you know, rather than feeling good that someone who was hurting you is gone, um, we similarly, I think, want to look to our capacity for compassion to bring them also into our circle and concern and not to 
be happy that they're dead, but to regret that they didn't they didn't figure it out a little better. The one who's passed. Yeah. Well, the one who you know the the one who was abusive and alcoholic in yeah. life, and now now has never had a chance to resolve that. I found it much easier to be compassionate, as I think many others did around my grandfather after his passing. After, after he's gone, life. he's no longer hurting you, so you yeah. can you can zoom out and see his yeah. picture and he, more clearly. To be fair, he hurt others in the generation above me sure. much more than... People you care about. Rabbi, very quickly, is is that okay from a, a Jewish perspective, that that being a celebration in a sense of passing? I don't think there's... I mean, generally, I don't think we view death as anything to be sub, to celebrate. I mean, there are exceptions. We just had a special day in the calendar last week called Lagba Omer, uh, the passing of a great rabbi. He, 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 he actually, before he passed away, demanded that the day that he passes should be celebrated like a wedding day. Mm-hmm. That was a unique situation That's for true. a great person who had a beautiful life. To a certain degree, if we celebrate death, it's, it's usually for someone who had an incredible life. And we say, wow, like what an amazing life they led, you know, and now they've, you know, completed their life in this world. Um, someone who had a very, um, unfortunately had a, let's say had a life that was filled with a lot of pain and causing others pain. I, I think that the day they passed away in general is even more sad to say to yourself, wow, it's too bad that person had to go through that. Usually when a person passes away though, I find that most people tend to always find, because everybody's filled with good and stuff. I mean, most people, you know, as a, as a rabbi who often does funerals and, you know, conducts funerals and, Somehow when a person passes away, a lot of, I mean, except for the people that maybe are really in pain or hurt from this individual, for the most part, always look at the positivity in, in that individual after they pass on. You know, oh, they used to do this, they laugh at it. So generally we try and celebrate the life. We don't really celebrate death, because death really onto itself is, is something right, and as of right now, is something sad, which needs to be transformed. I want to take the caller who's been patient on line four. Can you hear me? You're on the air. Yes, I hear you, Doug. How are you? Hey, Stan. Good evening. You sound better this week. Uh, each week is another week. Anyway, I have to ask a question where they respond. I have to ask these gentlemen, have any of you been in war? You mean a veteran or either a veteran? I mean, have they fought in a war? I'm getting a, a, a I never have. head shake here and Rabbi Yaakov. Uh, none have, of them, yeah. correct? Am I saying none of them? Am I right about that? I haven't. Uh, so all no, three of us, the no, answer is no. no. Okay. Let me say that there's no place for sorrow and no place for guilt or no place for some form of prayer, not all the time, in war. There's no time for it because every minute is saving life. You have to stay alive. I've seen it. I've been there. Prayer and sorrow, to some extent, as far as I'm concerned, had no place because it didn't help the situation. You move from one minute to the next, someone is killed, they're put in the ground, they say two minutes or something and move on. I came back but once. But they're not the, loved ones, right? I mean, you're fighting them. Or, or you're talking uh, about to the fellow soldier, they're loved ones. Okay, got, so, it, yeah. got it. The point is this. When we came back to our troop, and we saw a truck, and the, uh, there was a man there. He was a priest, I guess, rabbi. They, they do all the services. He was saying things on the truck. I said, what's in there? There were 40 or 50 body bags in there. And I said to him, what is the purpose of this? And he said, it, it, it's something. I said, okay, go ahead, you know, and that was it. The point I'm trying to bring out is 
All, this topic is a wonderful topic, but not in war, and not okay. when we, so human I, life is at stake. I at never state. would have thought of that um, uh, frame. No of time life. for it. No, yeah, no time for it. Rabbi, what do you say to Stan? I guess is this in, in Vietnam? You got it. Okay. What do you say to Stan's point around kind of the not having this? Do you postpone your grief reaction? What do you do when you cannot, for your own survival, in a sense, have a grief reaction? Correct. I mean, clearly, when someone's in the middle of a battle in war, there are a lot of things that are just not relevant at that point. You know, the normal way of life, everything is different. So clearly, of course, mourning, uh, everything's different. If they're in the middle of a battle or a life-threatening situation, they have to take care of survival. It's like Pikuach, Nefesh, and Shabbos as well. Yeah, yeah. So exactly, Yom Kippur is there's you're being attacked. Exactly. You're meant to go pick up a gun and fight uh, and put aside. You know, you're supposed to eat and then break Yom Kippur. Um, I do uh, want to say, sake, uh, as an acknowledgement, I want to get to one because a number of, of of listeners have written on this t- question of over mourning that the, or this issue that came up earlier. Just before we run out of time, I do want to acknowledge Stan point that. We, there maybe was an oversight on my part that this show does presuppose kind of quote unquote normal circumstance where you kind of have the time to process in a healthy way and you're surrounded by loved ones and so forth. And when you're in a cataclysmic you know, event at war and, and famine and flood and so forth, I mean, a lot of this, I think even I would imagine I'm looking at you, Bonte, we heard Rabbi's opinion, like, you know, you get a pass, you take, you can kind of get to it later as it were. Well, I think it also bears noting that many soldiers are uh, are, are beset with, uh, with with mental challenges after war, with grief, with uh, you know, with long term challenges as a result, maybe of of not having the chance to to mourn uh, the, the 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 hell that they go through. We have like a minute left, and I want to get to the issue of timetable. Several listeners have written about the over-mourning comment. In Judaism, it's a year of mourning. Just a kind of lightning response. Rabbi, if you're still grieving after a year, is it too much? Are you over-mourning? Yes, yes. And that means that in, in Buddhism, is there also kind of a, 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 a timetable? There is, and it, it, it overlaps pretty well with Judaism. It's one of the uh, things I, 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 I admired from the, from the outset with Buddhism, is that, wow, they also see the reality, the psychology of, of, of mourning, that it needs a lot of time. There's so much more that we could cover here. Lots of um, questions, in, in, including the the um, combination of that. I'm gonna, I don't have time to really get into the how you love someone who's passed, how you maintain that connection. That sounds like subject for another show. A couple of interesting listener comments on that. Buddhist monk. Bante Santi, I keep wanting to call you Santi, Bante Santi, Rabbi Yaakov Bankalter, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure again to be honored. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Hope to be back again soon.